I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, a magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. On February 24th, a new era begins at the American Library Association when Tracy D. Hall takes the reins as the association's new executive director. For this special Dewey Decimal bonus episode, American Library's editor and publisher, Sunita Sinharoy, sat down with Tracy for a wide-ranging talk touching on everything from Alias Future to what music Tracy's listening to right now. They even got into some game show-inspired action. Here's their talk. Well, because you've talked about wanting to create an environment of levity and learning, we thought, what better way to start out uh, than to start out the interview with a multiple choice quiz about ALA history? (laughs) All right, I'm ready. All right. So, first question. The first ALA annual conference was in 1876. Where was it held? A, Philadelphia. B, Ottawa. C, Buffalo. (laughs) Shout out to Philadelphia. That would be correct. Where's my bell? I know, the bell's not working. There we go. Question two. I didn't know you had a real bell. (laughs) Question two. Which of these people has not been an ALA executive director? Robert Wedgworth, Shirley Chisholm, Peggy Sullivan. Oh, that Shirley Chisholm had been an ALA executive director. Oh, my goodness. But you know what? I'm going to represent for Shirley Chisholm. I'm going to try to take that on. (laughs) Well, let's give that a bell right there. Question three. Unbought and unbossed. That was her presidential motto. That's right. All right. So that's it. That's right. That's the the goal. What year was the first midwinter meeting held? A. 1980, B, 1908, or C, 1941? Oh, this is hard. Um, would it be, well, let's, let's do some power deduction. 1980. That would have been exciting because of, uh, you know, all of the suitcases that everybody would have arrived in because you wouldn't have had socks. You would have just had, you know, just your suits. You know, that kind of thing. And then the acid wash jeans would have been a suitcase themselves. Let's see, 1941 would have been really late because if, you know, the founding in 1876. I'm going to go with B, but emotionally, emotionally I'm going with, with A, but I'll go with B. You would be correct. Okay, thank All you. All right. Well, three for three. Um, Now getting on to the serious, the more serious ALA business side of things. Okay. So you're coming into ALA during a period of significant change. What change excites you most? Wow. I am excited by change management in general. I mean, you know, obviously if things are working well, you don't want to disturb them. But I think the aspect that I'm really interested in is like thinking about impact and how do we align and realign ourselves continuously in organizations um, for greater impact? You know, I don't think that organizational charts or um, organizational spreads are, you know, um, 
holy grail. I think that there's always opportunity to move for you know efficiency. I, I don't equate um, or conflate efficiency and effectiveness, um, but I am really excited about um, supporting people and teams to work at their best. So I think that's the aspect that really um, intrigues me. Where do you see ALA fitting within the larger social justice landscape? On the front lines and at the forefront. We have to be, right? It, this, everything I think right now is pointing to equity of access. And, um, you know, when I think about, you know, the fact that the first civil rights era demonstrations, the first sit-ins happened in libraries and not lunch counters, that's not lost on me. Right. And I think that, you know, we've been moving in my tenure and working in libraries, you know, we've moved to not require library cards um, for um, patrons who were homeless um, to just allow them if they could bring back any type of proof of, you know, where they were at the moment that they received information, they could um, they could get a library card. I think that was important. We have seen um, people who were working in the original gig economy, right, which is under, ta under the table, the gray sector. We've seen them have to move to um, digital platforms to be able to even find those types of jobs, and we've helped them navigate those spaces. Um, I think we've seen in the economic downturn, libraries being on the front line of helping people reposition themselves and um, and reskill themselves for the workforce. So uh, when I think about you know where our positioning is right now, everything is coming to us. We're in a census year. We know how important that the everybody being counted is um, just in terms of their enfranchisement. And libraries on the front line of that. We were on the front lines even of thinking about home ownership and making that more accessible. So I see us always being on the front line and sometimes, you know, sometimes hopefully ahead um, of the pack and looking around the corner because that's really our responsibility. We should be able to follow information trends and to provide a service strategy that means that people won't be blindsided by social change. A lot of these social justice issues um, have to do with programming or services through the public library sphere. Mm -hmm. um, how do those same social justice issues intersect with other types of libraries like school libraries yes. and academic libraries? And yes, and um, so school libraries, absolutely, right? Because in school libraries, you know, we are able to deal with the attendant or adjacent issues that students face, you know, so we are um, obviously um, making sure that every student, regardless of the resources that they may have at home, um, you know, have access to the same types of information as well as information technologies, right? Um, and also, too, the ways in which um, school libraries have become places where there's um, homework help and then navigation with testing and all those kinds of things, right? I'm also, and you know, maybe because, you know, as an artist and as a poet, I spend a lot of time working um, in prisons um, and teaching poetry and using um, the resources of prison libraries. So, um, you know, we are now, you know, in a space where so much is being privatized that even library services are being privatized. Just access to reading um, is being monetized in prison. That's something that we have to stand up against. But I also want to talk about um, health informatics. Uh, right after Katrina up until today, I got really focused and keen on how people um, are able to make sense 
of um, the, and navigate the healthcare system and the information that they are given that's just, that sometimes is like impenetrable, um, you know, not even decipherable to people in terms of, you know, if I have a diagnosis, how do I treat it? How do I treat it if I have a limited amount of money? What medicines are absolutely necessary? What does alternative care or alternative methodologies look like? And when um, post-Katrina, I spent some time in New Orleans and I got a chance to see the ways in which um, community or people's libraries outside. Now, you know, obviously New Orleans public has an amazing library system, but there were ways in which people needed like really immediate and specific types of information. And I, I really got interested in healthcare um, and in medicine and hospital libraries, but also um, health libraries that might be oriented, you know, towards women or people who have diabetes or people who are trying to navigate diabetes, but may speak English as, you know, a secondary or a tertiary language. So I, I really hold that um, as something that's like in the forefront of my own practice as a librarian to think about the fact that as we live longer um, and probably live longer in more fragile health, how are we going to make sense um, of, uh, of, of the decisions that we will need to make to live the best quality life that we can? That's a long answer, but it just tells you that I'm really also interested in people's libraries and people's library movements. And, and the fact also too that, you know, even proximity is really important. Brian Stevenson, you know, talks about that um, from the Equal Justice Initiative. But I have also been heartened by the ways in which even though people might have libraries near them, schools near them and public libraries near them, the ways in which the people themselves are creating these small little libraries on their streets, you know, People want information. They want ubiquitous information, and, um, and and they want it within reach. Well, there was a lot of discussion at midwinter regarding ALA's finances. Yeah. How do you plan to help address them or and or turn things around? I, we are in an era where old business models are becoming obsolete. Let's face it. Right. So, you know, I'm Generation X. Right. And um, and and then right behind me, um, you know, are two groups of people who share a generation, but have um, really similar, but also very different information seeking styles and and uh, communication styles across information platforms. So we have alternatives, just like we now have alternatives to the big department stores, we have alternatives um, to the ways in which people feel like they are members of um, a community, right? And people can create communities. They can create these small communities that really in a lot of ways reflect very intimately, you know, their immediate goals, preferences. And, and also they can create communities that in terms of social reproduction theory, just purely reproduce their own thinking and their social strata. And I, that's why I really like associations because in an association, you can create your micro tribe, but you are a part of building consensus or contributing to a consensus that um, it represents a collective um, voice. And I think that uh, for me, what I really want to do is to maybe understand that ALA should be attracting people who see themselves as stewards of the profession and not people who are just um, along, you know, just on the wave. Uh, we really are going to need all hands on deck. And, and so I don't 
see what's happening at ALA as being different and apart from what's happening socially. Um, or just in the terms of the ways that people shop or interact or engage. I see it as very representative of that. And I see the opportunity for me to not turn it around, but to use this moment to say this is an all hands on deck moment. You know, before we were talking about the need for a 21st century healthcare informatics. Um, the need for um, prison access um, in a way in which the prison is not monetized or a utility or you know uh, something that's used for economic gain, um, those kinds of things. People who care about those issues and all that I did name, you know, the fact that um, our entire you know our cities. Um, you know, are giving way to waves of gentrification that is displacing people in record, record numbers. I am looking to work alongside people who see those issues as issues that they want to fight for, understanding that the greatest gains and really the only significant systemic gains um, are achieved as a body and not just as an individual, right? So I am interested in people who want to be and see themselves as part of a movement and not just a membership. Well, what gives you hope? This is somewhat related. Yeah. Well, what gives me hope are the issues of the day. The fact that we are um, looking at um, models for reading in, in, in digital platforms that um, make reading access equal and inclusive as opposed to um, being prohibitive cost-wise for libraries and, you know, and, and, and for end users. I'm excited also to be part of um, a conversation and I'm hopeful about the insistence on um, racial equity and inclusion and the insistence on um, making sure that libraries both as on the side of workers as on the, and as well as on the side of users um, are accessible and navigable to people with disabilities. I am excited that we continue to have conversations about GLBTQ representation in the literature. Um, I am excited that libraries all across the country are insisting um, on the right of public school students to have high quality libraries. Um, I am excited that in our profession, and I'm hopeful about in our profession, that we understand that um, libraries are needed now more than ever and that we are watching usership, uh, the rates of usership rise, but also um, different types of different types of uses uh, you know of the library um, and then I'm also hopeful that we're beginning to understand that the library in a lot of ways is both a physical space as well as a social space um, that can exist in bricks and mortar as well as as, as well as in digital space so I'm, I'm hopeful because I think all of those conversations are going to lead us to um, the next century of um, a style of information service delivery that is going to match uh, the needs of, of, of people who want to do great things. Shifting gears a little, what makes you laugh? <laughs> wow, questions like that. Uh, what makes me laugh? Children, I love children. I'm a big observer of children. Um, I think because they are so honest, you know, and so unfettered in the way that they communicate or the way they skip. You know, the other day I was, you know, walking uh, down the street. It was busy. Everybody was just moving at breakneck pace. And there was this 
little kid and he just decided that he was gonna jump over um, every little grate. There was like a grating system and he's just gonna jump and he's his mom is holding something in one hand or whoever his caregiver is, she's holding something and he's just jumping and he's pulling down and he is just delighted. And what I noted is that she looked to see why, you know, she's bending far down on one side to keep, you know, to keep him afloat or keep him up, right? And she sees that he's jumping over, um, you know, these grates or cracks um, in the sidewalk and she doesn't admonish him. She just allows herself to kind of seesaw through. And that was like a victory for me. It's small things like that. Both in this case, the child and his desire to find moments of play in the midst of all this busyness. And then also to the recognition that the adult with him saw that he was playing and saw that as sacred. So things like that make me smile or laugh. I, I love those small observations because they actually make this life that we're living worth living. In your interview with us earlier in the year, you mentioned loving music. Yes. What's on your playlist right now? Oh boy, I'm always going back, 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 back. Pink Floyd is on my playlist. You know, I, I, I love Pink Floyd. I love punk. You know, I grew up in LA. I could tell you stories, but I'm going to save it. Um, oh, share. I'm going to save it because, you know, I was one of those kids. You know, punk was um, from its inception. You know, punk, especially old school garage punk, you know, it was a very intersectional. You know, um, punk was a place, you know, growing up in L.A. where kids from South Central and kids from the Valley, you know, regardless of their race or, or um, background came together. Um, and, and there was like, you know, and it was late, you know, punk was late. Like sometimes punk bands would pay, play after, <laughs> you know, the other, you know, the other bands that were maybe more pop or more soul or whatever. So there was like a, a way in which... Um, there, there's always been something to me about punk music that is about full expression. Um, and so I'm thinking also too about, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers that I return to all the time, Fishbone, who I love, oh my goodness. But when I think about Pink Floyd, there's a melancholy there in that music and you know also what they were trying to do at the time and what was happening where they were across the pond if you will that I hear and I get I get I get the moment and they traveled you know and they were friends like they were they were friends kind of first and making music together and there's something about that synergy that is in their early music that you hear and you just you know it just you just travel so like right now I'm spending a lot of time with Pink Floyd we're gonna be moving into a new space soon. Yes. How do you plan to decorate your new office? <laughs> I'll have to see, you know. I love dolls. When I was at ALA before, I always had like all these dolls and people would bring me their dolls, like other uh, colleagues here. They would be like, oh, you know, I wanna to talk to you about something. And by the way, I had this doll and somebody gave it to me years ago or, and you know, so I, I still have those dolls all packed up. Um, I've graduated now to Indebele dolls from South Africa. I've done some travel in South Africa. I love crafts. Um, and so I was in Limpopo region at one point um, on a literacy project working with women um, and families who, because they lived in very damp environments, um, books made of paper weren't necessarily um, you know, the best option. And so we actually worked together to combine um, literacy strategies with actually creating um, books um, using their own personal stories made of fabric. 
And so while I was there, um, I got a chance to start collecting um, these Indabele dolls. And I've been to South Africa, like on a vacation since, and once for work. And whenever I'm there, I get as many dolls as I can. So maybe I'll showcase that collection. That wraps this very special bonus episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Thanks again to Tracy D. Hall for joining us to talk ALA and more. As always, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Mm-hmm.